0: If you, if you don't, I know most of you, if you don't know me, I'm on staff here, my name is Josh Jatro, I direct the New City Fellows Program as well as the Center for Public Christianity. So it's my, my joy that you're, that you're here and f- for this opportunity to deliver the word to you this morning. What are we supposed to be doing? I mean, on this planet, with our lives, to ask this question of purpose is to ask an ancient question it 's to ask a universal question and it 's to ask a uniquely human question. But how do we get at answering such a macro question in our first year after we had moved to Raleigh? I had a dinner meeting with several folks from the church at my house now. I have to confess something to you uh, so you can understand this story. I don't, I don't drink alcohol, but I want to reassure you that that's mostly just a habit of mine. I grew up Baptist, so what can I say? But I figured it would be a nice gesture to serve some wine uh, with dinner for my new friends, for my new Anglican friends as they were coming over. But when everyone arrived, when everyone arrived I realized I had a problem. I had the glasses out. I had the wine bottles, but I had no bottle opener. So I did what any 30-something-year-old with an iPhone would do. I googled shortcuts to open a wine bottle. I figured I could MacGyver it open. But after 15 minutes of failed attempts with a bike pump, yes, you heard me correctly, a bike pump, that's what it said, and then the back of a hammer, I went with what I should have done to begin with. I texted my wife. She, a bit embarrassed by me, which isn't anything new, uh, informed me we actually do have a bottle opener and told me exactly where it was. That evening, I illustrated an important philosophical truth. Yes, ask why first, Google second, but that's not the one I'm talking about. Purpose and design go together. Pumps are designed for the purpose of inflating things. Hammers are designed for the purpose of driving nails. Bottle openers, you guessed it, are designed to open bottles. To know the purpose of something, we need to know what it's designed for. And so too, in order to answer the question of our purpose and our mission in life, we need to ask the question of design. What were we made for? And this is where Jesus comes in. Because in the Great Commission, he's actually getting at this question. This morning, we'll look at, number one, the who of the mission. Number two, the design behind the mission. And three, the purpose of the mission. So first, the who of the mission. Look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. After the crucifixion, the eleven disciples are traveling back to Galilee. The place full of memories of their ministry with Jesus. Their long walks filled with his teaching that gripped their heart. His miracles, his authority over nature. His tears of compassion, his resolve standing up to religious hypocrisy, his care for the outcasts and the sinners. They surely had these memories coming back to them, but, but their nostalgia had to also be laced with grief. Matthew wants to remind us that while they come into town with, while they came into town with 12, they're leaving town minus one. They're down to 11. Judas, their friend, their partner in ministry over the last three years, has betrayed Jesus, has betrayed them, and now he has taken his own life. So even with the reports and appearances of a resurrected Jesus still spinning in their mind, they they surely can't escape the feeling, the, the sting of betrayal and sadness that they're feeling. They also would have been feeling guilt over their own failures. Surely they would have been. Jesus, after all, had kept telling them that he must die, that the first will be last, that that the greatest must be a servant to all. But their imaginations had been too absorbed by the socio-political narratives of their day. They, like so many Jewish people, were tired of Roman rule. They were the people of God, chosen from the nation's For out of the nations to be a light to God's glory. And yet this pagan empire had brutally and unjustly mistreated them. Their kings, their Jewish kings were just puppets. Dancing to whatever song the Romans wanted them to play. As much as Jesus told them that he was not bringing in his kingdom by force. But as a suffering servant. Their imaginations were too taken By a Messiah made to fit their own expectations. Their failure in imagination meant they couldn't understand what Jesus had been telling them, and this left them unprepared for Jesus' capture and his crucifixion. They weren't ready. They had abandoned Jesus because they were ready to stand with Jesus, yes, in glorious triumph, but they weren't ready to follow him to the cross. So it doesn't, t- doesn't take much, at least I don't think it takes much for, much for us to imagine these 11 men were filled with a mixture of emotions. Sad, yes. J- Judas, their friend, had betrayed them and they had abandoned their friend, Jesus. Ex- excited, yes. There, there's this sense of excitement. After all, Jesus seems to be alive confused? What does this all mean? What's next? I think many of us today can relate with this mixture of emotions. I know I can. I'm tired. Let's face it, it has been a dumpster fire of a year. I've been sad. I've been frustrated. Not just because I'm watching the news and looking out at what's going on on the streets, but also because of the divisiveness within the pews of the American church. But there's also been a sadness as I look within, as I look at my own heart, as I have to face up to my own failures, my own idols, my own hardness. So don't hear me this morning kind of wagging my finger at the American church or even what's going on on the streets I think those are problems those things should distress us but know that I'm coming this morning recognizing that we have to look within too and as we do there's a sense of darkness that we have to all struggle with together in our own hearts but on the other hand I'm excited I think some of you are feeling this as well I can see what might be a light at the end of the tunnel of this plague. Of course, like many of you, I'm wondering what's next for us? What's next for us as a church? What's next for us as a nation? Sadness, excitement, uncertainty, our emotions? We know right now. And in the midst of a roller coaster of emotions, I think it's especially important for us to think clearly about our mission. Look at verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. These broken, confused, yet hopeful, excited first century Jews do something quite remarkable on two levels here. On one level, it's remarkable that they worship Jesus. The worship of a crucified and resurrected Messiah would be scandalous in the first century. To Jews, it was blasphemy to worship a human. Devout first century Jews, such as these disciples, were strict monotheists. They they only worshipped one God who is the creator and ruler of all things. If they knew... One thing growing up in Wana or Sunday school, it's you only worship one God, not, not a man. And yet, quite remarkably, these disciples worship Jesus. Now, it's important to note that Jesus was not worshipped, as, as some scholars sometimes suggest, as some kind of special angel. Angels do not create or rule creation, Creating and ruling was a function of God in the Hebrew scriptures. And angels are not to be worshipped. Yet Jesus was worshipped by the same guys who had walked around with him for three years. He was worshipped by even his own brother. Can you imagine that? And this worship began almost immediately rather than growing up after a long gradual process. How did such a dramatic paradigm shift happen so fast? What motivated this almost immediate shift? Well, they had spent the last three years with Jesus, and he had made some crazy claims. We know that. And these claims went well beyond the messianic expectations of the day. You know, in Mark 2, you remember that incident where he claims he could forgive sins? Of course, everyone knew only God could forgive sins, Or in John, or even in some of the other Gospels, he he uses the statement, I am. It's especially highlighted in John's Gospel, recalling how God had revealed himself to Moses as I am. But surely they must have thought, we can't quite take him so literally here. He was always speaking so metaphorically. But now after the resurrection, it's beginning to dawn on them as these memories kind of rush in and they're wrestling with, what do we do with this? And they see the resurrected Jesus. They do what must have felt like an impossibility not long ago. They worship. They worship. If you're skeptical this morning, we're glad you're here. If you're skeptical of the resurrection, we're glad you're here. And one of the things I want to mention is there's, there's really good historical evidence for this. It's a historical claim. It's not like other, some other religions. It's making a historical claim that can be looked at. I'd be glad to, to send you some more resources on this. If you want to wrestle with this claim some more. On a second level, it is remarkable that Matthew tells us that some doubted. Here we're reminded that faith isn't so easy. Again, if you're skeptical, if you have your doubts, join the club. They were looking directly at the resurrected Jesus, but some doubted. Some some still weren't so sure. They still had their questions, they were still dealing with unbelief, and Jesus knew it. And he knows your doubts too. Matthew presents us with a picture, not of ironclad faith, but faith alongside doubt. And Jesus doesn't condemn them for it. Instead, he commissions them. He accepts us in our doubts and our struggles, and he still calls us on this mission. And in a year when it has become apparent that we're needy and frail and broken... God still calls us on mission. Bring your doubts, bring your mixed emotions, bring your grief, but learn to worship Jesus. Learn to worship Jesus through it all and cast your eyes on the risen Christ. That's the who of the mission. Broken people, he calls on mission with them. Number two, the design behind the mission. To see the design behind the mission, we need to look carefully at this thematic link between 17 and 18 look at 18 and jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me now the phrase heaven and earth should 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 put off a buzzer in your mind heaven and earth where do we hear that phrase in a very important chapter the very first one in the bible genesis one if we have any doubt about the claim jesus is making Keep verse 17 in mind. His disciples here are worshiping him. He's not refusing that worship. And now, and, and he's telling them now he has authority over everything in creation. But remember, Jewish monotheists knew only God rules over heaven and earth. And that's exactly the point. And this is. Mission statement to the first disciples and to the church throughout all time, he's stressing the totality of his rule, all authority, make disciples of all people, obey all of his commandments, and he will be with us always. The design behind the mission here is that all humans were made to worship Jesus as Lord. Jesus has sent us, if you're a believer, he has sent us not simply on a rescue mission, certainly that. He has sent us also though on a reality mission to declare that there is only one God and one Lord. He is the creator and ruler of all things. Everything is his and everything exists for his glory. And so to purify. To paraphrase John Piper, our mission exists because worship doesn't. We were designed to worship God. So our mission is to call on people to do what they were created for. This has always been the mission of God's people. We, saw, we, we read about this in the two Psalms earlier. Look in your, look in your, uh, in your bulletin to... To, at Psalm, back at Psalm 96. You see it there. The first three verses. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And it goes on. This isn't simply a, a New Testament thing. We were always made to de- praise God, to declare his glory to the nations. And Jesus, echoing this call, echoing this mission, calls us on a doxological mission. To proclaim what is. All of our lives are to be worshipped. Bearing witness to the, to the reality that is, that is Jesus is Lord over everything. I was talking to a friend uh, on the phone this week from church and we were talking about everything going on uh, in our nation and in the church at large and he said, you know, if I'm honest, I'm willing in my personal life to offend people, even, even some of my own family members about my political views. But he said, if I'm being honest, I'm much more hesitant to to offend them with the gospel. With this proclamation that Jesus is Lord. And he added something like, "I, I think many other Christians, I think we all, all of us, many of us are in this situation. And that's something we should probably be doing more thinking about. And that did get me thinking... I think the the thing that we are most willing to offend others over is also probably the thing that has tacitly become our Lord. Whatever we make as Lord, we will form our most sacred community around. This is the reason the picture, we have this picture in Revelation 7-9 of people from every tribe, every tongue... Every nation gathered around the throne of God in unity. Despite differences, uniting over the thing that they are worshipping. The person that they are worshipping. True unity in, in the object of worship leads to unity in mission. Number three, the purpose. The purpose of mission. Verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hammers are designed for nails, bottle openers are designed to open bottles, and image bearers are designed to reflect God in lives of worship. And therefore, the mission of the church is to call people to do what they were designed for. This is what Jesus came to save us for. We worship God by following Jesus and then by teaching other people to worship God by following Jesus. This is simply another way to say we are to make disciples. Of course, that raises the question what is a disciple? (laughs) Verse 19 tells us a disciple is someone baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and someone who seeks to observe everything Jesus commanded. Now by this time in Matthew's gospel, if we were reading straight through it, we'd have a picture of what what Jesus means by this. Jesus himself gave a summary of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to obey what he's commanded when you look at his Sermon on the Mount, his opening sermon of his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 5 is a passage that many of us know quite well, but I want to make sure you don't miss the connection here between discipleship and mission. So what I want to do for just a couple minutes here as we're about to be done is I just want to give you kind of a highlight reel, okay? This is, you didn't have time for the two-hour basketball game, and so I'm going to give you the, um, the one minute kind of connection here. The key plays here. So just follow along with me. Or listen along with me. What does a disciple look like? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is what a life, in other words, this is what a life of true worship looks like. Jesus knows that this is, and, and what he's pressing in the Sermon on the Mount is this, don't be like the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs, they're just outside performing, but a true disciple is here, the inside out, they live their life. Jesus knows these dispositions of the heart, this way of life will create pushback and his disciples will face hostility. So listen to what he says next. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Which is hard. And then here's the kicker. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Living with this kind of humble joy as we look forward it's we can only live with this humble joy if we receive life as a gift that we don't deserve and we're looking we're living our life looking forward for what's to come for what jesus has promised to come This is how we witness. This kind of life, this kind of posture is how we witness to the world. We know this because of what Jesus says next. Okay, this is the very end of the highlight reel here. You are the salt of the earth. So he's transitioning of how you deal with persecution, the dispositions of the heart, and now it's saying that's going to be your witness to the world. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give. And here it is. What were we designed for? To give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That last connection is important. To live as disciples is the way that the mission advances. Humans were designed to give glory to God. And so we invite them to do what they were made to do. And we do that by letting our light shine before others. By doing good works. By suffering well. I believe at this very moment in our culture, as we stumble out of this plague and find ourselves in polarizing and confusing times, what the world needs most is for the church to live this out. For us to be people who know and live our mission. For us to be people who aren't driven by fear or shame or guilt or resentment, but by the joy of the resurrection. After Matthew 28, these broken, doubting, confused disciples, well, we see a remarkable transformation. The disciples, as we know, who who got got a lot wrong, who look back and surely said, man, we've messed that up. But something happens and there's this unity and joy and evangelistic boldness in the book of Acts. And we see the truth of the resurrection is getting pressed deeper and deeper into their hearts. These frail disciples were transformed into courageous witnesses and the book of of Acts describes them as those who were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. I was reminded Really, this whole year, but especially in the last week, how life is such a vapor, as many of you I, I saw the news the horrific news of the the shooting in Atlanta uh, uh, around this time i also we got news as a family that my father in law was being admitted into hospice care. I also got the news that a that a friend 's brother who was four years younger than me, had passed away unexpectedly. Here's what I know about life. Two things. Number one, none of us are getting out of this thing alive. I think we need that smelling salt. We need that smelling salt to wake us up. But number two, I know and I believe deep in my heart, that Jesus rose from the grave. If you believe that this morning, your purpose, our purpose, and our mission is clear. And the good news is, you not only have a purpose and a mission to live your life that has eternal significance, but because of the resurrection, here's the promise, the best is always yet to come. The best is always yet to come. The king has come. He has laid down his life to make us heirs of the kingdom. So take heart. Jesus is Lord and he's promised to be with us to the very end. Let's pray. Father, we pray like the early disciples that the truth of your resurrection would get pressed deeper into our hearts and that would change the way we live that we would live our life to give you glory and we would invite others to do what we were all designed to do and we pray this in Christ's name amen